So I don't know when I stopped having a Christmas wish list. I guess some people have uh, wish lists now, too. I don't know when I stopped having a Christmas wish list. It happened sometime while I was still a child. Um, and if you look at me right now, you know I'm not a child. Uh, it's been a while. I can remember asking for lots of things that I felt I absolutely had to have to have a good Christmas. If I don't get this gift, I would be absolutely devastated. There was no way I could have a good Christmas unless I get this particular gift. Now, if you guys know me, you know that I'm a bit of a computer geek. And that's not a new thing. It's, it's been my entire life, pretty much. I remember, in fact, one year I asked for and received a brand new Commodore 128. Yeah, see, I can even hear the breath coming out of people's mouths. A 128, not a 64. It was twice as powerful as a Commodore 64. I was looking forward to receiving my new computer that would have, you know, a five and a quarter floppy disk drive that could have lots and lots of things saved on it, you know. It would only take 300 of these to save, you know, an article on Wikipedia. Uh, it, 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 I, I would be able to load programs and games, you know. It would only take 15, 20 minutes to download, to load onto the computer something like Pong or Ultima, number one, not one, two, three, four, five, or Final Fantasy, one. I think they're up to like 20 now. And I would be able to play in all its 8-bit goodness with the strange uh, sounds coming out, uh, out of the tiny speakers it had. I was looking so forward to this. Now, to give you an idea, just for those of you who are much younger than me and understand, uh, don't understand what I'm talking about when I talk about a Commodore 128, when I say 128, I don't mean 128 gigs. I don't mean 128 megs. I mean 128K. I did some quick mathematics last night to try and figure out how powerful that is by today's standards. Uh, my phone is 24,000 times the processing speed of my Commodore 128. My credit card has a chip on it with twice the memory <laughs> as my Commodore 128. Let's just say I was so excited and so enthused by a gift that, well, I, I was young. I didn't know that, you know, uh, obsolescence comes pretty regularly for computers. I thought that this would be make me happy forever, that this gift would make me have the best Christmas ever. If my 11-year-old self had seen the things computers can do now and the device I carry around... Uh, I probably would have been tempered a little bit in my joy at receiving a Commodore 128, and probably rightly so. I say this because I honestly kind of remember and regret the ways that I dealt with Christmas when I was a kid. I mean, I was so excited about a computer that was going to be on a trash heap in two, three, maybe four years. And I didn't recognize that I would have family around me that I care about, that I still care about. 
some of whom I can't have around me anymore because they're not with us anymore. I didn't recognize that my mom had taken time, taken time off work so that she could come home. She was a nurse. It's really hard for nurses to get time off around Christmas. And I, 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 did, I wasn't very thankful for that. I was too excited about this, well, piece of junk. And unfortunately, I think that that's something that was pretty common when it comes to Christmas. You see, sometimes the gifts we want aren't honestly very good. Even worse, sometimes the gifts you don't want are great, truly great. This isn't a new thing. There are gifts that are so good, we don't think to ask for them, even if they're pointedly offered to us. I can remember times when I was offered to go to my aunt's place to go have a dinner after Christmas, because we had Christmas dinner at home, but we had an after-dinner Christmas thing with, at my aunt's place. And I mean, I can still taste the beef that she made. I haven't tasted that in a decade, because, well, she's not able to cook it anymore. And I can remember being miffed that my mom and dad had made me go there. <laughs> when in fact, I could have been playing with my Commodore 128. Now, I'm thinking, I've, I, I could have given up just 10 minutes with my Commodore 128 to have just a little more time to enjoy time with my family. And I regret that. And unfortunately, that's not the worst of the situation for us as believers. Sometimes, Honestly, and this is what, why I started with that video, we don't really recognize the gift we're being given in Chris, at Christmas. We don't recognize the greatest gift that God gave us. And honestly, this isn't a new thing. You can see it in Scripture, too. You see, it's a lot like Jesus, the way that we react to good gifts sometimes. As Pastor Steve dealt with a couple of times back before when we were dealing with the Gospel of John, I think, what was it, five weeks in the first chapter? It said, when Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, we saw that his own did not receive him. God had offered the greatest gift possible. Not the greatest gift you could imagine, not the greatest gift you could think of, the greatest gift possible. He gave himself to, the, to us as a people. He put off the glories of heaven and came down to be with us. There is nothing, amen. You are, you are actually allowed to say stuff during this, the sermon and uh, amen is a good one especially talking about this. And just to accent a little bit more, if you look around the events around Jesus' birth, you'll we saw last week when, uh, when Steve preached on Mary and how Gabriel had talked to him. Gabriel tells Mary that, the, that this Jesus who's coming to the world would, quote, 
reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there would be no end. Now, that's very religious-y talk, so most people paper that over in their minds. Now, when I say Jesus is good and Jesus is powerful and he is going to rule over the house of Jacob for all eternity, let's just think of a few implications of that. It means that in Christ, there will be a time when peace will be forever. I will, there will come a day when I don't ever have to turn on a TV ever again to see the things that are going on in Syria right now. Because it will never happen again. Ever. Because Jesus will rule forever. When I have problems with the things I'm able to do, uh, mostly my own sin and my inability to put it away, there will be a time when Jesus will rule over even that and my sin will be gone. In fact, just to talk about that a little bit more, when, when Jesus was about to be born and Joseph had a dream trying to understand whether or not he should uh, have, take Mary as his wife, part of what God said to him in the dream was, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I'm going to be explaining that a little bit more later as to why that's really important. But for the moment, just think about that. He will save his people from their sins. It doesn't just say he will forgive his people for their sins. He does that too. That's part of being saved from your sins. But he says we will be saved from our sins in Christ. You see, God's gift to us 2,000 years ago is unimaginably good. Uh, it's mind-numbingly good. It's so good that for the most part, we kind of go over it and we just, it's just one of these things we can't even compute. So we don't try to think about it. But honestly, we should. Unfortunately, like I said, when it comes to really good gifts, oftentimes there are other gifts we would prefer to it. Sometimes we'll just want the Commodore 128 instead of, you know, the family. Or in our case, we'll want whatever replacements we can get for Jesus instead of Jesus himself. We'll talk about a very smarmy kind of sentimentalist Christmas when the greatest joy is offered us and we can think about the great the gift of Christmas in Jesus. But as I said, this isn't new. Um, our text for this week which is a little strange for most people. Uh, this is not actually a traditional Christmas text. I'm going to be reading from John, from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to about 18. I'm going to be focusing on 718, but I'm going to read from 1. And it's important because I think that it's important to catch kind of a really interesting slide that's going to happen between verses 1 to 6 and then from 7 to 18. So the word of the Lord says, if you've got it there, it's in the New Testament, third, third book, the New Testament. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of 
Etruria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. In case you're interested in remembering this, John the, John the son of Zechariah is John the Baptist. We already know that he had a bit of an extreme birth as well. Angels, yeah, angels visiting and striking his father dumb and things. And he went all into the region of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Keep that in mind. As it is written in the book, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Now get the, get the kind of link here. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Not a heartwarming, Christmassy kind of thing to be looking at, I guess. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him and who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his burn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. Good news? It doesn't sound like it, does it? Um, I'm actually thinking that we as a culture have been kind of inured to the ability to hear rebuke properly. We actually think that this isn't good news. Now, you can see the good news in talking about who Jesus is as mighty and above all things, but oftentimes we're going to have trouble understanding why John the Baptist speaks like this, you know, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, talking about the axe being at the root of the tree, ready to cut it down and throw in incredible fire and all this kind of stuff, and imagine that it's good news. But it is. But we'll look at that. I just want to notice, want you, you all to notice a few things this morning. First of all, I want, I want us to notice how 
how John preaches with a rebuke. And this is called good news. It doesn't just say in the text that the good news is just this little passage about Jesus. Good news refers to the whole section. So all of it is, in some sense, good news. So I want you to notice that. And I want you to also notice what this means for the Christ that John is proclaiming. First of all, the problem of rebuke. Now, this is kind of problematic for me, and I, I, I worry that this is going to cause me to get in trouble with people. As Steve often says, I think I can run faster scared than you can run, if, run angry. So I think I'm fine. But rebuke can be a good thing. In fact, sometimes the people who love you the most are the people who are rebuking you. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. There are things that we have in our minds, that we have in our beliefs, that we have in the things that we do, that we think are good and we're going to hold on to and think are beneficial to us even when they're not. Sometimes the best thing that someone can do for us, someone who loves us, is to rebuke us. Rebuke can be an act of love. And I have to say that to my brothers and sisters here because I hate to break this to you, I do love you all. And because I love you all, I am absolutely certain that there will be times I will say things that you're not going to want to hear. Please hear me, I don't say them because I hate you. I say them because I want us all to be a family. And I desire your happiness more than I desire you to like me. And honestly, that's true of all the elders. That's why they're elders. They love you, and that's why they're going to sometimes say things that are going to make you mad. Because they love you. And you see, that's the way I'm actually interpreting John here. John doesn't hate the crowd. He isn't saying to the crowd, you guys are terrible, you should go away, never come back. He's saying, open your ears, you need to hear this. You need to be prepared for what's coming because what's coming is not only dangerous and, 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 and powerful, but it is. It's unspeakably good. And you're not going to be ready to get, hear this. You're not going to be ready to embrace this unless you give up on the weird things that you think are good now. Soren Kierkegaard I apologize for referring to him. People sometimes have bad opinions of him. First existentialist philosopher. and Existentialism isn't popular in Christian circles. But Soren Kierkegaard in his book, The Sickness Unto Death, refers to something called despair. And the worst kind of despair he refers to is the kind of despair that you don't 
even know about. In fact, you might even call it happiness. It's those kinds of things that you do to militate against the problems that you're having in your life, the things that you don't see. You know how some people will drink tons of alcohol so that they don't have to think about seeing their families again. There are people who watch lots of movies. I happen to be in this camp just so I don't actually have to deal with people who might not like me very much. That's actually a form of despair. There are people who spend their whole lives making tons of money to cover over the fact that they are really scared about their futures and they think that the money will help them. John knows because he knows God and God has told him this stuff. He's the last of the prophets, first of the proclaimers of Jesus. He knows that those are all blind alleys and they will kill you. They will end you up in worse than a ditch, especially eternally, because there is a God of justice and there is a God who is going to rule over all things and he will bring justice like rain. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of that. You don't want to be the injustice. Please don't be the injustice when he, when he brings justice to pass. Be embracing him. And that's why John uses really, really harsh language here. He calls them a brood of vipers. If you look at the version of this in Matthew, it says that he's only saying this to the, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the crowd, or at least that's the implication you can get from it. But in fact, here, Luke says he just says it to the crowds. General speaking, everybody hears it. Now, I'm sure there are Pharisees and Sadducees there. I'm sure that he's saying it because of that, but Luke is giving us a different kind of understanding here. He's pointing out that there is a harshness to the gospel that needs to be said, that needs to be dealt with, and that we need to be prepared to hear the good news. You see, John is, as the prophecy in the first part here says, making straight the paths of the Lord. The, right, the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. But it's not a physical thing. I mean, we, we know that because John the Baptist did not <coughs> level any mountains. We don't have that uh, in history. We don't see that in history. We don't see him straightening roads. He wasn't a construction worker. He's changing people's hearts. He's smoothing out the, place, the rough places in people's hearts so that they'll be prepared to hear the good news. And that needs to happen to all of us. Some of us will react well. Some of us won't. I have to say that too because I remember when I was much younger and first becoming a Christian, uh, I had a friend of mine who I liked a lot, you know, And he was doing some things that were really, really devastating to him. Uh, in fact, considering what happened, uh, he probably should have listened to me. But as a result of what I had said, he stopped talking to me entirely. I didn't meet him until years later again. 
I desired him to, be, to have his heart straight. I desired him to see the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not everybody hears it, but some do. In the text that we have before us, two different groups see it directly. First of all, we see, um, well, the crowd generally, you know, they ask, what shall we do then? Remember John's, John's original statement, bear, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then people ask, that what shall we do? They're not dealing with under, undergirding things. They're just dealing with their surface issues. Well, we should do, he says we need to do stuff that's in keeping with repentance. Well, then what should we do? And John answers their question directly and tells them. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is, is to do likewise. And yes, that is a good thing to do. And that's what John is saying. That's what a fruit of repentance would look like. That's what he's saying. But notice there are also other two other groups who do this generally. It's very interesting how it's usually outsiders who notice this kind of message faster. Tax collectors and soldiers. You see, uh, I, I think you've probably heard this a bunch of times if you come to church, but tax collectors were not really well liked in the time of Jesus. They worked for the Roman Empire. They funded the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. And then there are soldiers who actually work for the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. Both people that generally were not well liked. But their ears are open. They begin to hear a little bit of what John is saying. And they recognize that there is something wrong in their lives. And that there's, they need something. And so they ask more directly. You see, they actually hear. Unlike in the text we hear in, in Matthew, we don't see how the Pharisees and Sadducees respond. Because to be honest, they didn't respond well. They didn't respond with repentance. And the reason is pretty simple. The soldiers and the tax collectors recognized that there was something wrong. They recognized there was something they needed. The biggest danger for us and for other people is when we don't recognize what, that we need something. Sure, we may see that the world isn't a good thing. I mean, after all, Christmas is built, I mean, the Christmas industrial complex is built on the fact that everybody wants the world to be better than it, ha that it has been generally. You know, for a few weeks, we'll all sing Christmas carols and we'll sing hymns to uh, talk about how peace should reign. And, you know, we'll talk about peace on earth. We'll watch movies like It's a Wonderful Life and Miracle on 34th Street and uh, Christmas Carol. And all these movies will talk about how we wish things were better, how people were nicer to one another, how it would be great if this worked out this way, if we could all bear fruits in keeping with repentance. But after Christmas, we'll all put it aside. We'll imagine, we'll, we'll say, well, you know, that was very idealistic of us and it would be great, wouldn't it? But it can't really happen. Again, not a new thing. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory more than 60 years ago, uh, talking about this far off country where peace would reign and where truth, truth is good and where everybody loves one another. 
He says, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I find a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. We all have a desire to see eternity. We all have a desire to see the goodness of God reign over all things. But most of us will pretend it's not possible. So we'll call it names. We'll pretend that it's idealism or something like that. I'll talk to people who are younger who say that this stuff, that, that may have some weird ideas about what, how we could do this and call them idealistic. And it's not a good thing to be called idealistic usually, at least not in our time. The secret which also pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. You can try, you can try this out, it, it's, he's right. If you start talking like, you know, like the world could really be good, where like Jesus really could reign over all things, people get awkward pretty fast. And it's not always because they don't like Jesus. It's sometimes because they just don't believe this could be possible. They tell you to be realistic. But instead we grow awkward and we laugh at ourselves. A secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that's never actually appeared in our experience. None of us have ever seen the kingdom in its fullness. But I guarantee you we all desire it. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Because the problem isn't just the things we do. There's a reason that John used the specific phrase, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and not do the right things, guys. He recognized the problem that we have is much deeper. He also recognized that the good news in Jesus Christ is much deeper. Moralism isn't the full extent or even the main point of the good news. I, 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 I should probably repeat that for us in a church. Moralism isn't the full extent or even the main point of the gospel. Moralism is an effect, not a cause. Our problem is deeper, the cure is deeper. You see, people like to think that, you know, religion, Christianity, all these kinds of things are moral reform projects. If I go to church enough, I'll become a nicer person and do nicer stuff. Christians are Christians because they do nice stuff for other people. I even heard, I've heard sermons that say this, you know, where uh, God doesn't really care what you, what you believe, he cares what you do. That's absolute and utter rubbish because the problem is not our actions. Our actions stem from our hearts 
and our hearts are desperately wicked. That's why John has to tell people, guys, you're a brood of vipers. You're fleeing a wrath (laughs) because it's coming. Because this evil that's in your heart can't last forever. Because there's a good God who won't let it last forever. Because someday goodness will reign. And you're not good. No, there is a greater news, a deeper news. And we can see it in verses 15 to 18. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, we do this too. We imagine a Christ that just wants to tell us about what right things we need to do. That Jesus just gives us a good checklist we can hit. If I hit all of the checklist in Matthew 25, 33 and following, you know, uh, uh, whatever you do for the least of these, my brethren, you do for me. I hear that every year around Christmas time. People say, you know, this is what we should be doing. This is what it is to be a Christian. Kinda. It is true that Christians do need to have good works. But the problem isn't just the good works. And be careful of making Christ into a moral teacher. That's, That's our number one error, usually. And we'll even say that other people might be Christ-like in that. I don't know how many people I've run into at the university who tell me, yeah, well, Jesus is pretty much like Gandhi or Muhammad or everything else, except there's a really big qualitative difference. Each of these prophets and leaders of religions tell me new stuff to do. They don't tell me how to change my heart. And Jesus does that, as we see here. You see... When John hears this, John says, I baptize you with water. Guys, water doesn't change stuff. It just cleans your skin. It gets dirt off. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Get this. A moral teacher is a good thing. They help, you, they help you understand morality. But they are nowhere near the glory that Jesus is. When we talk about who Jesus is, we're saying something on a different scale than a moral teacher. It's a categorical error to imagine that Jesus stands in the same camp as moral teachers. Moral teachers, they may be good, but they are not worthy to untie the sandals of the incarnate Son of God. And get this, I I don't say that because, you know what, it's my opinion. I say that because it's the Bible. Remember, this is John the Baptist talking. Jesus himself is going to say that there are no men greater than John the Baptist. You don't run into people better than John the Baptist. When he speaks, he's the best of dudes. And he's not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. Give me any moral teacher you got. He ain't worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. And because he doesn't baptize with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
Now, uh, there is a bit of confusion you can get into here because fire is going to be used twice in the next two verses. One positive implication, one negative implication. Okay? For this, the reason I'm going to say that is because right here in this passage, John equates the Holy Spirit with fire. Now, he's alluding to a prophecy. If you've got a few moments and you know you want to go back in your Bible, turn back to Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. I'm going to start to read at verse 1. Behold, I send my... Now, Malachi, just to be clear, Malachi is the last prophet you see in the Old Testament. If you, you know, flip a couple of pages after Malachi, you know, to see the end of Malachi, the next guy you see is New Testament, Matthew. Malachi is a, is a prophet. He's telling us about what is to come. And he says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he has peers? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and as a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. The fire that we're talking about is a fire of purification. It's a change. When John says that the Lord Jesus Christ, well, he doesn't say that yet, but I'm, I'm skipping ahead. Spoiler alert. When he says that Jesus baptizes you with fire and the Holy Spirit, he says he changes you. He's changing you. Friends, if you are a believer today, Know this, you're being made better now. The Spirit of God is working in you. It's a fire burning away all of the bad desires you have and replacing them with desires for God. I say that because that's what the Lord Jesus baptizes with. That's what it means to be in Christ. The Lord God works in your life. The Spirit works in your life. This is completely different than telling you what you need to do in, in order to get to heaven. Jesus doesn't tell you what you need to do in, to get to heaven. He does what needs to be done to get you to heaven. And he does it in you. He, John pours water over you. It'll get some dirt off the surface. Similarly, moral reform will get some dirt off the surface. People might think nicer of you. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus changes who you are. If you want to use big words, it's an ontological shift. You are a different person. You are made a new creation in Christ. Friends, that is unspeakably good news. 
Every time I try moral reform, I fail. I was in a hurry this morning, trying to get people picked up to get to church this morning, and I can remember the bitterness building in my head and in my heart. I tried not to voice it, but it was still there. Friends, there's a time, by God's grace, that bitterness won't be there. I won't have to stop from giving voice to it. It won't exist. That's what Christ promises. That's the gift we have in Christ. And so as I finish, I just want to give you some implications for this, of this particular proclamation that John has given us. And I mean, some of them I actually have on the screen, some of them I just came up with while I'm thinking here. But first of all, and first and most importantly, we need to believe the Christmas gospel. We need to believe the real Christmas gospel. I'm not talking about the saccharine kinds of things that the world is going to give us about what Christmas is about. I do not mean that we're going to be, you know, happy, joy, joy people. I mean we're going to know truth and truth will set us free. I, mean, I don't mean that we're going to just do nice stuff for poor people. We're going to love poor people and work hard to see them benefited. Not because it's a surface thing, but because it's a change in our hearts. We're different. We're not because we become the kinds of people who do that kind of stuff. We need to believe the real gospel. Not believe in some surface level, I'm going to be nice to people. I mean an undergirding change in who we are to becoming good people. And that only comes in Christ. That only comes in Christ. The kind of gospel that won't end on December 26th. The kind of gospel that doesn't change because of the weather or even because of whether or not the person in front of me is turning quickly enough. We need to believe the true Christmas gospel. That also means, though, that we need to proclaim the true Christmas gospel. I'll be blunt here, and this is being blunt to me as it is being blunt to all of you, because I don't do this. If you know this gospel, if you know that truth is available, that that the Lord Jesus came to change people, to save sinners, not, not just forgive sinners, to save people from their sin, to change not just the effects of sin, but change the very heart of sin that we have. Friends, why would you leave people in that? We have the news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus can and will change people. We don't need to be the chaff that's going to be burned in unquenchable fire. We can be the wheat that will be thrown into the into the, into heaven. We don't need 
to be apart from Jesus. If you don't tell people about that, you don't love them. (laughs) There's no way around that. And go back to what I said about John. We need to love people more than we love their liking us. That means that, yes, maybe sometimes we may have to have inopportune conversations. If you know somebody is going to hate you because you are a Christian, if, uh, if you tell them that you are a Christian and that they should come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, tell them anyway. Because you know what? They might dislike you for a season. But there is a chance that by God's Holy Spirit, something will change in them and they will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They may hate you for a season. That season may be the vast majority of their lives. But if God works, they will be with you for eternity. Friends, that's not even a... That's not even a real question, what should be done. You risk temporal problems for eternal gain. It's, I mean, I can do the math. Infinity is much greater than any number less than infinity. <laughs> and I mean, it's kind of cool because the church here has made it pretty simple. We have these things out in the back porch. You can invite, if you can't even tell people deep things about Jesus and you're afraid of questions and stuff, just grab one of these and give it to them. Invite them to church on, uh, on Christmas. They might not come. They might. They might not like it. They might. Give them the opportunity. Proclaim the true Christmas gospel. Friends, we don't have perfunctory things. This, this Christmas, as we go out into the world, don't let Merry Christmas become a perfunctory, meaningless greeting that can be replaced with happy holidays or even have a nice day. Merry Christmas means so much more than that. Let it be a heartfelt proclamation that the one who is greater than the moral training programs has come and that a true peace, a peace that passes all understanding is available. Let's not merely revel in new gifts or turkey or even united families. Those those are all good things. But don't revel just in that. Don't just revel in the mere forgiveness of sins, that God no longer counts our sins against us. Revel in the fact that he comes to save from sin. The deep cleansing baptism of the Holy Spirit that clears both the punishment and the corruption of sin, leaving us free to rejoice in the grace and mercy of God, able to sing of the amazing grace that saves a wretch like me. Oh, church, don't miss the greater gift in the midst of mere foretastes. Don't let your friends and your neighbors and your families miss the real gift in the midst of foretastes. Truly have a Merry Christmas. Wish your family and friends a Merry Christmas. That Christ has come. Friends, let us join with John 
and proclaim the Christmas gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, you are unspeakably good. Far better than anything I could ever ask about and mention. Lord God, keep us from being focused on mere surface things. Help us to focus on you. Where we, don't, where we doubt you, help us to look deeper into your word and gain deeper understanding. But as we go our separate ways, let us be empowered by the truth of your gospel, by the power of your gospel, that we might proclaim the gospel clearly to all. In Jesus' name we pray.